anyone can go on Facebook Marketplace, offer up, let go, even Amazon, the individual sellers on Amazon that are unlawfully selling illegally obtained goods. Introducing the Protectors, inside criminal minds from around the world. Presented by the IAFCI, leaders in safeguarding consumers from fraud and scams for more than 50 years. And now your hosts, International President Mike Carroll and International VP Mark Solomon. Hello, hello, hello. This is Mike Carroll, International President of the International Association of Financial Crimes Investigators. I'm here in Chicago. In Connecticut is Mark Solomon, our International Vice President. Mark, how are you doing today? Mike, I'm doing great. Coming from the great state of Connecticut. We're here in the summertime, uh, mid-90s today. I was out in the boat, had a blast. Nice. I'm from Chicago. Uh, Mark, we just bought a boat. And uh, what are the two best days when you buy a boat? Uh, the day you buy it and the day you sell it. You got that right. <laughs> That's right. Yikes. A lot of it's work. Not, it's not cheap, I'll tell you. <laughs> no. Hey, Mark, we have another great show today. Why don't you introduce our guest? I'm looking forward to this episode. Here we go. Our next guest is U.S. Army veteran with over 20 years investigative experience. He started his career in 2001 with the Monrovia Police Department, where he received various awards, including Mothers Against Drunk Driving Award, the Century Award, and the Medal of Valor. His next venture was with the Home Depot, where he worked various assignments of increasing responsibility to the senior organized retail crime investigator position. Today, he is Director of Security for Lugano Diamonds, is still actively a part of several organized retail crime associations, and currently sits as the International Advisor for Organized Retail Crime with the IFCI. We'd like to welcome to the show, Ruben Benuelos. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon, gentlemen. How are you all doing? Great. Good to have you on, Ruben. We really appreciate taking the time. Hey, Ruben, I just want to backtrack. So the IFCI, the International Association of Financial Crime Investigators, we have about 5,800 members, and we have, I think, nine working groups, such as uh, auto finance, bust-out, cyber fraud, human trafficking, ID crimes, mortgage. And one of them is organized retail crimes, which you are the co-chair. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, ORC? Absolutely. Organized retail crime is ever-rising epidemic across the United States and it has become increasingly more visible to the general public in the last couple of years. Uh, but what it is, it's when you have individuals that are working together, acting in concert to illegally obtain goods for the purpose of reselling them for profit. Now, this involves a lot of different moving components, a lot of different layers of a criminal organization that I can get into throughout the show to better explain what organized retail crime is. But ultimately, people are making a whole lot of money on illegally obtained goods, and it's funding a lot of criminal organizations such as gangs, human trafficking, narcotic abuse, narcotic sales, and terrorism financing. So, Ruben, you, you know, often we hear about people boosting, shoplifting stuff, but we're talking a different level here. We're talking a sophistication organization, multiple people working together. I mean, is that kind of the concept that you're seeing when it comes to organized retail crime? Absolutely. Uh, the network of organized retail crime investigators that work collectively throughout various orcas across the United States, we share the same information from these booster crews 
The reason organized retail crime investigators share information is to further build a case against these criminal enterprises. And it's very important because it's not just knowing that the person is knowingly receiving stolen property. Investigators have to be able to prove that they're knowingly receiving stolen property. And investigators across the United States have used various tactics, various methods to prove these cases. And that's why the awareness out there is so prevalent today as opposed to what it was 10 years ago. Hey, Ruben, let me ask you, you know, here in Chicago, we see a lot of news regarding smash and grabs where they just go right inside and just, you know, bust the window and get inside and get as much merchandise as they can and leave. This seems very prevalent in the last couple of years. Are you seeing this as a big problem? Yes. And the smash and grabs started off a little bit less violent started about five years ago, maybe even longer, where you had these flash mobs that would just show up. 20, 30, 40 people would enter a a retail establishment and just flood the sales floor with various people just grabbing things and leaving. As retailers have taken a proactive approach to securing that product, that's why you're seeing the increase in smash and grab, plus also the desire to get more desirable things such as fine jewelry, handbags, luxury items that you find on your more exclusive retail locations, those are obviously maintained and displayed behind glass. And you have individuals obtaining blunt objects such as crowbars and sledgehammers and smashing the glass so they can get the the goods that they want. And it's not always the goods that they want. It may be the goods that the ringleader wants to be able to sell for profit because these boosters are not getting the full retail value of the item. They're getting pennies on the dollar. And with those pennies on the dollar, they're going to go out and maybe buy some narcotics, maybe gamble it off, do whatever it is that they're going to do. But ultimately the ringleader is the one that's going to sell it for profit anywhere between 30 to 50% off the sticker price. And Ruben, uh, you know, it seems like organized retail crime from 10, 15 years ago has changed so much for now in that resale value of the stuff that's being stolen or purchased with fraudulent credit cards. Like, you know, I remember back in the early days, you know, like they would sell these things to bodegas, maybe 30 percent, 50 percent. But now with like online options and marketplaces is it true that a lot of this merchandise is selling for much more than it used to, or the resale value? Absolutely. Anyone can go on Facebook Marketplace, offer up, let go. Even Amazon, individual sellers on Amazon that are unlawfully selling illegally obtained goods. And that's why there's such a push for legislation to be passed. So these online marketplaces have to register and abide by the same rules as a secondhand dealer, no different than a pawn shop, where they have to, you know, confirm what it is that they're listing on their websites. And there are a lot of retailers behind that support. And there's a debate that can be very lengthy, but there is a reasonable explanation why retailers are doing this, because a lot of stolen items from their establishments are being sold on these online marketplaces. Hey, Ruben, let me ask you, too, you saw a lot of this 
stolen merchandise shows up on Facebook, Amazon. How about it, like flea markets or like mom pa stores? Have you heard uh, where a lot of the stolen merchandise is sold there? Absolutely, not just obviously in mom and pop stores or flea markets, but obviously in your suburbs as well. There was an amazing case out of Texas led by the Home Depot where an individual person was listing on an online site. The investigation is still active, uh, actively being worked by Home Depot, but the subject was arrested and that individual had his entire residence looking like the inside of a Home Depot where there was shelving and stacks and stacks of power tools that were being sold for pennies on the dollar. So when you're talking about how does it impact my community, if you're living within that suburb and you have a known gang member or a known drug addict that's bringing stolen merchandise to that particular individual, well, that criminal is not in those suburbs. Maybe taking advantage of breaking into vehicles, stealing people's wallets, to obtain more credit cards and more identity information, maybe bringing in their drug dealer, say, hey, I just got paid. I'm in this mainland suburb, USA, bringing my narcotics here. Now you have narcotic activity within the community, these uh, suburb communities, and it creates a dangerous situation. Violent gangs, these ringleaders that are asking for stolen product, they're not loyal to one particular gang. So you can create a problem where you have rival gangs in suburbia delivering solar merchandise and now they're on neutral ground could create a violent situation so mm-hmm. these are all the little things that are not actively reported or may not be visibly seen or heard by the general public but that is the reality of what happens in organized retail crime and that's why there's a big community of retailers working together and i hope by also educating financial institutions, that financial institutions also play a role in combating organized retail crime because a lot of times, and I've seen it being with the IAFCI my entire retail career, is we as investigators celebrate uh, when a mule gets picked off. Well, yes, great. But where was that mule taking that stolen product? Was it being taken to a ringleader? Yes, it's a credit card, identity theft ring, whatever it may be. But there's obviously someone that's reaping the benefits of this criminal activity. It's not for personal use. So that's my role as an educator in organized retail crime, is educating our financial partners to further investigate what is that next level look like. They're no different in loss prevention. When I started, it was catching a shoplifter and you were celebrating and high-fiving your partners. All that was happening is when that shoplifter got arrested, that ringleader was just finding another criminal element to go steal that property. So it works hand-in-hand with financial institutions. Can you arrest the mule? That ringleader is just going to find someone else to do it. That's why it's important we build these cases upward. Hey, Ruben, can I ask you, as someone who's worked in loss prevention, let's say compared to five years ago, are you seeing more violent individuals that come into the stores and are shoplifting. I'm just kind of thinking as a loss prevention investigator confronting individuals now compared to five, ten years ago. Do you see, are you hearing, is it more violent? Believe it or not, it actually is. 
And in the lost furniture community, it's kind of baffled why, because a lot of jurisdictions have lessened the punishments of retail theft. Some jurisdictions have actually increased the minimum threshold from misdemeanor to felony. So a lot of retailers have gone to a hands-off policy where they are not physically restraining these shoplifters. So retailers are still wondering why the increase. A lot of it could be because they're under the influence of alcohol or narcotics, or they are members of a gang and as part of their initiation to be violent, to prove their worth to their gang. A lot of it could be just they know the punishment isn't going to match the crime. So I'm just going to be violent because I can, because I know district attorneys out there may not punish me in some of these jurisdictions. Or maybe in the ones that that are really punishing them, say, I'm not going to go away for 25 for this crime in those other jurisdictions where their crimes are being punished. So they're going to fight their way to freedom. So there's no real solid answer that I can give you for the increase other than there has been an increase in violence towards our loss prevention investigators out there. And it again raises the concern of they're violent towards a loss prevention person when they're taking these stolen items to a mom and pop shop where the neighborhood family shops, or they're taking it to a pawn shop in a historic downtown part of the community or into suburbia USA. These same violent criminals are entering these well-established communities, which is creating a dangerous situation for everybody. So, Ruben, I was on the National Retail Federation website the other day, and this statistic blew me away. It says, organized retail crime now costs retailers an average of $700,000 per $1 billion in sales, and three-fourths of retailers saw an increase in ORC from 2019 to 2020. I mean, those are staggering numbers. Who is this impacting? Obviously, the retailers, but it goes beyond that, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, When I started in organized retail crime, I always wondered why items like razor blades, baby formula, over-the-counter medication were all locked up. These are things that you need day to day, you know, especially baby formula for our infants. And the reason why it was locked up is, quite frankly, it was being stolen. And there's a lot of reasons behind why we shouldn't be buying Infamil and baby formula online. But to answer your question, there is an increase in organized retail crime, and it has increased year over year because the profit is there. And the people that are impacted the most are the consumer. The consumer is the one that has to spend more money because retailers have to offset the cost of these stolen goods. For example, we can go back and search it on the internet, any item of desire, for example, baby formula, razor blades, over-the-counter medication, cosmetics, has dramatically increased because of organized retail crime. So the consumer is paying more today than they were 10 years ago 
not just because of cost of living or inflation, but just because it's not available. Supply and demand is impacting it, that demand is there because the supply is so limited. Even more so today, obviously, with the concerns of baby formula not being available on the shelves for a lot of these infants. Create a dark market where you're buying Enfamil, maybe at a bodega, an unauthorized market, a pawn shop, a flea market. You go to a flea market in Southern California where it's 95 degrees out. It's in open air under a tent. That baby formula is not regulated. That baby formula must be maintained in a certain temperature or else it goes bad. So it creates not just the cost of the consumer, but also the dangerous situation for an infant. Hey, Ruben, you know, you're right. I was out shopping yesterday. I was buying razors. They were locked up. You had to take the, the or call a clerk over, take the card up to the front desk. And same thing for uh, ink for my printer. I had to go up to the front desk. Please tell me they're not going to do that for alcohol. <laughs> Let's hope not, because obviously okay. uh, that would be a little bit more inconvenience for all of us, right? <laughs> So, Ruben, uh, what has COVID done uh, for organized retail crime? You know, has it made it more challenging for loss prevention investigators to identify people? What are some of the trends that you've seen through COVID? Talking to some of my colleagues in the organized retail crime arena, they are consistently saying the same thing, that COVID made it easier for these suspects to get away with it because primarily they're all wearing masks. So you add a hoodie a baseball hat, some sunglasses, and now a mask, their faces are completely covered up. Uh, Some investigators have gone as far as saying that they've had to testify on tattoos that they've identified on a suspect's neck, arms, or hands, just simply because of their dealings with them in previous theft incidents, that they're very well aware of those individuals. They can't see their face, but they recognize a particular tattoo or a birthmark. Going to technology for those retailers that have facial recognition, COVID kind of just blew that out of the water because of the masks. And social distancing has also impacted the ability to identify people or for even associates to provide customer service, which is a theft deterrent to the retailers. Some associates are, sales associates are afraid to or were afraid to approach people in the heights of COVID. Uh, to deter a possible theft as well. So COVID had a tremendous impact on organized retail crime, and that's why some of the increasing reports are coming out today. Hey, Ruben, you talked about prevention as far as, you know, locking up certain items like razor blades and baby formula. But let me ask you about prosecution. It's national news, West Coast, Midwest, East Coast. Why do you think, I mean, here in the Midwest, they've raised the limit as far as prosecution as as a felony? You know, you mentioned this impacts a lot of people, a lot of businesses. Why has the prosecution been a little lax on uh, retail theft? I think a lot of it is not understanding what organized retail crime is to a prosecutor. Organized Retail Crime Associations have done a fantastic job of educating law enforcement from patrol all the way through detectives, through the command staff. So if you go to most police departments across the United States, they're going to be familiar with what organized retail crime is. 
unfortunately, when it comes to prosecution, if you have a lot of these organized retail crime crews traveling from city to city, suburb to suburb, most of which have their own municipalities and jurisdictions, a lot of times district attorneys may not want to vertically prosecute all of those crimes. And that's why in the last couple of years, you've seen such a push for those crimes to be vertically prosecuted uh, across jurisdictions. And this is great not only for retailers, but it's also great for credit card theft, daddy theft, you know, whatever it may be where victims are being impacted through multiple cities. I have actually seen prosecutors prosecute financial fraud cases by leveraging their ORC statutes within their state because it's an added to their charge. It's an added enhancement in some cases. So it's important that our financial fraud partners understand those laws so that they could take advantage of that prosecution for their cases as well. And Ruben, we're going to play a little word association game here uh, for some of our audience that may not be very familiar with some of the terms in organized retail crime. What is a booster bag? A booster bag is exactly what it sounds like. It is a bag. It could be a paper bag or a bag of some sort that is lined with foil or some material for the purpose of defeating the electronic sensors that are affixed to items or product. You see this quite frequently in the malls where it's not uncommon for someone to be walking with multiple shopping bags that are made of paper and boosters are using those bags to fill them up with Levi's, Victoria's Secret, fragrances at a mall that all have sensors on them. So when they walk past the sensormatic machines, the alarms do not go off. So they get out unnoticed. Hey, Ruben, I got a word for you. What about a fence? That's easy. Little wall that goes around your house, right? No, I'm kidding. Jeez, come on, man. the organized retail <laughs> crime world. That's it. <laughs> a fence is actually the person or business that is reselling the illegally obtained product. And a fence could be anything from an individual selling it online. It could be a business owner selling it at his or her place of business, such as a pawn shop or a bodega or a small business. I said the flea market is a big opportunity. Sometimes you see vehicles roaming around parking lots or setting up little pop-up stores on street corners saying, hey, I'd like to buy some fragrances, some lotions, baby formula, power tools, whatever it may be. That is essentially a fence. Whoever is illegally selling the product for profit. And Ruben, what about a booster? A booster is an individual or a group of people that are working together for the sole purpose of stealing. Now, you would think, well, that's almost any shoplifter, but these boosters have a specific job. Their job is to travel around various retail establishments and steal for a living. In some of the investigations that I worked, I had those boosters getting up like clockwork at 5.20 in the morning. 5.40, they're in their vehicles. And six o'clock, they're entering the store. And they're working a full eight-hour shift. Now, mind you, 
labor laws in some of these states, they're required to take a lunch. So they do take their full hour lunch, whether it be at their fast food joint, but then they go right back at it, continue stealing. And that is very prevalent across all retailers, uh, whether it's soft lines, big box, department store, they are like clockwork. Hey, Ruben, here in Chicago, we also have a regional organized crime group. It's called CC Rock, Cook County Regional Organized Crime. And uh, in fact, Mark was in town not too long ago. We attended one of their monthly meetings. And one of the frauds that came up related to um, retail theft is the returns, where they're stealing the merchandise, and then they come back and trying to return it for cash or credit. How's that? Do you see a big increase in in, uh, return theft? Absolutely. And there is a big market for it because essentially when you refund something without a receipt, an item without a receipt, you get full value for it. So if you were to refund a pair of jeans, a sweater, a fragrance, power tools, whatever it may be without a receipt, you're giving not only giving the suspect full retail credit, you're also tacking on the sales tax. So there's a couple of different components here when it comes to refund fraud. The first is that a lot of our boosters that steal and refund the stolen items are using counterfeit driver's licenses to bypass refund systems because retailers track the amount of refunds you do on a driver's license. So they go out and get a counterfeit ID with a counterfeit number from various states. It doesn't even have to be from the state that you live in that all driver's licenses are accepted across the U.S. And they're issued a store credit, which is essentially a gift card for the item. So let's just say it's a $100 drill plus tax, $110 on a gift card. You could turn around and buy more product with it. You could turn around and sell that gift card for cash. Or you could turn around and exchange that gift card for narcotics or any other illegal activity that you can think of. So that's the first component is that you have boosters utilizing counterfeit IDs to commit these crimes. The one thing that is not talked about a lot, and I've actually, my previous career, leveraged this with some prosecutors, is when that refund occurs, it includes the sales tax, which is essentially depleting sales tax revenue from the state which a lot of prosecutors never realized that when they were talking about refund fraud. And when you're talking about these individuals doing refund fraud for a living, eight hours a day, five days a week, making thousands of dollars a day refund frauding, and all of that sales tax accumulates, some of these cases could be upwards in the millions of dollars in fraud that are prosecuting. And you're talking a million dollars by one person that's roughly $100,000, give or take, in tax revenue that was depleted. That's the other component, which impacts emergency services, education, just state funding in general. That revenue is being depleted. So I've actually partnered a lot with the various state tax franchise boards in the jurisdictions to prosecute these cases. And then again, because they're going back to the original cause of the counterfeit driver's licenses, you have a form of identity theft where someone's driver's license number is being used illegally without their permission. 
So when Mike wants to go back and refund his ink owner and is told he can't because he lost his receipt because he has excessive refunds, that's because someone else had already used his driver's license multiple occasions at that retail establishment. So that's the impact on refund fraud. Ruben, uh, if there's people in our audience today listening to this podcast, uh, maybe they own a retail store or a business, what are some of the tips you could give them to try and prevent organized retail uh, fraudsters coming into their place and committing crimes? I think it's one of the best advice that I can give them is continue to sell your product and provide that customer service out there to help drive your business and get to know your clientele. Um, I could tell you in various retailers, they've done a fantastic job of providing that customer service. And I can tell you bad actors, criminal suspects, whatever you want to call them, don't want to be interrupted because they don't want to be identified. So they typically don't like it when employees start asking them questions. What can I help you with? What are you looking for? That is the best deterrent out there. Number two is investing your technology, having cameras, High-definition cameras are essential for evidence in prosecuting these cases. Sometimes you can't rely on a key witness. You want to have that proof that that person was there. Preserve that video of those thefts that are occurring. And then most importantly, document those incidents. Like, for example, I tell a lot of loss prevention people, you know, you didn't take a report. You know, there's no crime happening. No different if you go to a police station saying your neighbor's having loud parties every Saturday night, watch commander goes to his or her computer and says, I don't have any calls for service for any loud parties at your house. You're not going to get a lot of support from the local police department. You may, but you would get a whole lot more support. There was constantly calls for service for that party every Saturday night for the past two months. Same thing in loss prevention. If you're not documenting the thefts that are occurring in your establishment, whether or not you have loss prevention or not, want to make sure you document when are these thefts occurring. Follow those police reports. Law enforcement is going to need those police reports to prosecute these individuals. Because if we're not filing police reports, it's very difficult to prosecute. Hey, Ruben, I think that's a great idea, what you mentioned. And I hope a lot of stores are doing that as far as the customer service. Approach your customers. Simple. Ask, can I help you with anything? And like you said, now if they're a booster, they're kind of worried that somebody's watching them. That is a great prevention idea that you gave. One other one I was thinking of, I I see a lot of these alerts that come out uh, locally through CC Rock, and it's like they'll fill up the cart and just go out the front door just as fast as they can. And some of the stores, I don't want to mention the names, but they always have somebody at the front door saying hello when you walk in, like you mentioned, and as you're leaving, can I check your receipt? It seems like that's a good prevention idea right there, having an employee at the front door. It is, and I can mention some retailers that have taken it a step further that have smart technology with those shopping carts. If that shopping cart has not been near a register where those items were paid for, that shopping cart locks at the front door, preventing that shopping cart from going any further. So you see suspects basically coming to a stop at the front door and they can't get out with all that product. They may grab a couple items, but obviously you're mitigating your losses there. And then talk about my previous company, Home Depot is taking a very proactive approach with technology where 
power tools will not work until they're sold. So if they're stolen, they're not activated at the register. They will not work. So there's a lot of smart technology that's coming out of retail that's making it exciting for RC investigators out there to continue to combat this epidemic of organized retail crime. Hey, Ruben, you know, you've talked about both prevention and prosecution, and it seems like both are the key to uh, preventing uh, retail theft and these organized groups. For the future, what, what do you see that we need to do more of, or is it both? Is it more prevention more prosecution, or we just need to do both? I think there's three components, actually. We need to continue with the enforcement of these crimes and obviously the prosecution. But more importantly, we got to continue to educate each other on what the latest and greatest trends are out there. What are What is occurring out there in the stores, in the retail community, in the financial fraud community, to ensure that we are trying to do our best of staying ahead of these criminals. And that's why it's important for everyone to attend the conference. Uh, we're going to be talking about organized retail crime at the conference, and I hope to see everyone listening there. Uh, we're going to share a lot of case studies and have some new dynamic speakers out there, I hope. And hopefully it's beneficial to everyone to learn a different component of financial fraud from an organized retail crime investigator out there that I hope to have and get to entertain everyone out there. So looking forward to the conference. Hey, Ruben, you mentioned before about consumer protection. Is there anything else you can add to how we could help protect our consumers? Yes, there is. There are a couple of key points. Number one is our consumers need to understand that they are interacting or purchasing items for people that they don't know or don't have a business track history but it is dangerous for them to be interacting with these criminal elements. Essentially, they're a component of organized retail crime and the people that they deal with are criminals themselves. So now you're putting yourself as a consumer in a dangerous situation. Number two, like I mentioned with the technology that some of these retailers are using where it makes a item inoperable if it hasn't been sold, you're basically spending money or wasting money on something that may not work. Furthermore, you're buying an item from an unauthorized dealer, which essentially voids your warranty. Your war- warranty is no longer valid when they ask you where you purchased it. So it actually hurts you and may hurt you in the long run if the item no longer works. Ruben, we've talked on this show numerous times where we told our consumers, you know, if an offer is too good to be true, it probably isn't true, you know. And I think, you know, we have people buying stuff online for 40, 50, 60 percent off for items that are brand new. You know, it's almost like you're helping the fraudster. You're helping these criminals by purchasing that stolen merchandise. And, you know, nothing is going to be 40 or 50 or 60 percent off, you know, in the real world. So, you know, you almost have to assume that that item has been stolen or fraudulently obtained. Yes. Great points. It could be illegally obtained, stolen, fraudulently purchased. And also, one thing we didn't touch on that's not a major component of organized retail crime, but something to be aware of, could be counterfeit. Yeah, you know, so you think you're buying something that's worth five, $600 when it might be 40 or $50, you know, a big name brand item and, and uh, find out later it's not authentic. Absolutely. 
I would go along with what both of you are saying regarding selling something brand new online when most stores have a great return policy where you buy something by mistake and it's brand new. You could return it. Yeah. And those are all great tips that we give prosecutors when they're selling it for below cost, not just below retail, but below cost. And although it's not illegal to sell something below cost, but it certainly is a red flag. And Ruben, I got one last question for you. I'm a customer going into a store and I see criminal activity taking place. I see somebody stealing something, putting it under their clothing. What should they do? Best thing advice I could give them is notify an employee. Don't get involved because these are criminals that are doing this. And as we've seen the increase in violence, I don't want to give anyone advice to engage this individual, but certainly feel free if you feel comfortable notifying an employee of what you saw. I've seen it, many articles on the newspaper where customer actually calls the police themselves. Say, hey, I just saw this occur at this business. And law enforcement subsequently apprehends those individuals. So if you feel the need to do something, see something, say something type of mentality, I would just say, Notify an employee if you feel comfortable. Notify law enforcement if you feel comfortable. And if you don't, totally understandable because, like we've been talking about, there has been an increase in violence and we don't want anybody getting hurt. Sure, absolutely. You want to make sure our consumers are safe. But uh, I always feel that uh, saying, see something, you say something. And, uh, you know, if you could do that safely without interacting with the individual, I think that's great advice. Hey, Ruben, I got to thank you. Um, you know, I work for a financial institution, and a, a lot of the cases that I'm investigating are retail uh, organized crime groups targeting uh, our clients, targeting our financial institution. So I'm constantly getting emails from you as the co-chair of the organized retail crime group uh, for the IFCI. And that information, like you said, getting out to us, uh, techniques, strategies that the fraudsters are using. Uh, we really appreciate what you do and spreading the word and spreading information out to us in law enforcement, uh, financial industries, retail industries. Thanks for what you do. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, Mark, I got to mention, too, Ruben's a great presenter, and he's going to be presenting at the conference in National Harbor. And he starts out with a little magic trick. And uh, that gets great participation from everybody who attends that presentation. So, Ruben, I've been working on a couple magic tricks, too. So when you come to National Harbor and uh, we meet down at the bar, I'm going to make a couple beers disappear real quick. So you'll you'll like that trick. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> like to see that. Hey, Ruben, are you working on a new uh, magic trick this year? I guess everyone's going to have to come to the conference to find out, right? <laughs> right. And, and it's awesome. Like, you know, doing a presentation, you just gets the crowd involved and, you know, it's something good to uh, lighten up the uh, crowd. No, definitely. I am working on a couple uh, very different pieces for the conference that'll be different from the last time. So it's something fresh and new for everybody. So I hope everyone enjoys it. So, Ruben, uh, we are so lucky to have you with the IFCI. Our audience uh, today is so lucky to hear from an expert like you, giving us some valuable information and really a, a snapshot of how serious this problem is in the retail industry. So we appreciate you coming on to the show, and we wish you the best of luck, and uh, hopefully we'll see you uh, in August in uh, Maryland. 
Absolutely. I'll be out there. And thank you both for having me. It's an absolute pleasure and a joy to have been on here. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing everyone at National Harbor. Thanks again, Ruben. Looking forward to seeing you at National Harbor. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Remember, as you join the fight to protect our citizens, you're not alone. With more than 6,500 members from around the world, the men and women of the IAFCI are standing together with you. To learn more or to join the IAFCI, please visit our website at www.iafci.org. The Protectors Podcast is produced by Modified Media and is available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. The hosts and guests' opinions are their own and do not reflect those of management, employers, or sponsors. Listeners are encouraged to contact law enforcement if they suspect being a victim of a crime.